So you can leave the slide up there, actually. I think it'll cover an embarrassing lake. Or <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'd like to say I'm a subscriber to the Richard Dennis School, but in fact, I've just never got it together. So. Yeah. I'm going to quickly introduce you, Mike, um, okay. based on your bio. It's, it's, it's not from personal experience, it doesn't matter, but it's all gut at the moment. <laughs> so, uh, um, thanks, so, thanks for being here, Mike. Um, Mike uh, Dawson, is that correct? That's correct. Um, is a management consultant, productivity analyst, writer, and systems theorist. His particular interest is in the interaction of people with technology. Mike has many years of experience in business and working for technology companies. He has consulted to a diverse range of organizations, private, public, and not-for-profit of all sizes in many industries within Australia and overseas. Among other things, he's currently involved with public policy formulation around the economy, technology, and transformation. Okay, over to you, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to pick up on a, a couple of points that uh, Michael raised, uh, particularly looking at the implications of technological effect on work and then one of the solutions that he mentioned to the problem. About a year ago, I attended a presentation given by a leading figure in one of the world's largest technology companies on multiple big screens. Orchestrated from state on a device like this one, he gave us a glimpse of his company's vision of the future. The centerpiece of the presentation was a film. Not surprisingly, in the film there was a lot of technology. Intelligent machines, anticipating our needs, feeding us useful information from a vast store to assist us with decision-making and practical tasks, organising and communicating on our behalf, and all built into the objects and structures of the world around us. Like smartphones on steroids, but semi-autonomous and everywhere. Interestingly, there was a lot of nature in the film too. Have you noticed how benign natural environments feature in marketing insights? I think it's an expression of a cultural meme which values the quality of life and sustainability and also an antidote to the sci-fi dystopias that currently haunt the popular imagination. And of course there were people, diverse in age, gender and ethnicity, but nevertheless of a kind. Fit, urbane, attractive, highly educated and above all, functioning. It was a compelling vision and slightly chilling. When the presenter called for questions, I turned to the person next to me. He was thinking what I was thinking. Someone else at the back of the audience asked the obvious question for us. Where in this vision is everyone else? What about the ordinary people? The ones with dandruff and pot bellies. The ones who love their children and help their communities but don't have any highly specialised skills and aren't very adept at collaborating with artificial intelligence. The ones who won't be needed. In response, the presenter made a statement which Sir Humphrey Appleby might have called courageous. <laughs> to allay our concerns, he used an example from history. The example he chose was the first industrial revolution in Manchester. 
I know. <laughs> Towards the end of the 18th century, new technology put the Manchester weavers out of business. And the pattern was be to be repeated in many places across many industries. People lost their livelihoods and communities collapsed. But not to worry, the presenter reassured us, because soon a much bigger industry emerged, employing many more people. In the long run, people were better off. We're accustomed now to thinking of disruptive change as necessary for development. Rather than evolving steadily, systems tend to become ossified. They usually only progress with the jolt that comes from new pressures. Nevertheless, this response showed a kind of audacity that I find is characteristic of technocratic thinking. I've studied the history of industrialization in Britain. I know what happened between disruption and happy ending. I nearly interjected. I wanted to say, yes, but in the meantime, they survived as pickpockets and prostitutes. Of course, many didn't survive very long. Many suffered horribly. Some were convicted of the crimes they committed to feed themselves. When the judges tired of hanging them, and respectable people could no longer tolerate the stench and the sounds from the rotting prison hogs, they sent them to places like this. <laughs> Here, some of them did better. But they did so by dispossessing the people who already lived here. What's different today is that there are no more Australians to discover. We don't want slaves to grow our cotton, or its modern-day equivalents, for the factories of the next Manchester. The Earth won't support a growing population for much longer, nor will it sustain emerging global markets as ravenous as ours have been. We've simply run out of new world to appropriate and consume. The only thing left to colonise is us. As some of the other speakers here today have demonstrated, that appears to be what is happening. A benign future necessarily depends not on further increase, but on transformation. Still, some people cling to the idea that a wave of new jobs will appear to support continued growth and soak up the spare capacity created by wholesale automation. Optimists point to promising new opportunities, such as one I heard about recently, the bot lobbyist. So what does a bot lobbyist do? Well, she creates fake social media accounts and other online ephemera to lure artificial intelligences on behalf of her clients. <laughs> you see, in the congested virtual world, it's increasingly machines that decide for us what's noteworthy. <coughs> what you see online is random. Someone or something has curated content for you. As you browse, it learns about you. So the bot lobbyist ranges on this new frontier like a kind of high-tech trapper. By manipulating machine intelligence, she harvests our attention. With our extensive experience of bullshitting each other, humans are well equipped to do this. It's one skill in which we retain dominance. This is a sign of a dysfunctional system. As ideologically driven governments seed agency to corporations and wealth leaves the productive economy for tax havens and asset price bubbles like real estate, businesses invent new occupations to wring more value for shareholders from the effort and aspirations of ordinary people. 
But how long before those jobs too are replaced? Yes, someone will need to look after the robots. But how many? I've worked with technology for decades. The whole point has been to replace costly human labour for cost-saving and competitive advantage. But those replaced workers are also someone's customers. Today in Australia, one in six children regularly goes without food. I was shocked when I found that out. Yet every day we throw away more than enough to feed them. Over 100,000 people are homeless. But in our cities, there is a greater number of dwellings permanently unoccupied. How can this be? The problem is systemic. We don't actually grow crops to feed people, just as we don't build dwellings to house them. Hunger and homelessness simply create a demand. The purpose in the neoliberal economy of agriculture and housing is to make the owners of land richer. People who don't have enough money simply don't get fed or housed. As inequality rises, there will be more of them. In a recent TED talk, the economist Yanis Varoufakis showed how an inevitable outcome of rising inequality is a shrinking economy. In economic parlance, this is due to a fall in aggregate demand. Rich people don't want the things that the vast majority of people they don't want public schools and hospitals, affordable housing and cheap holidays. They want Ferraris and luxury yachts and waterfront mansions. As their wealth accumulates, they don't even want those things anymore. If you have $10 billion, like our richest Australian, you could spend a million dollars a day for the rest of your life and still leave much of it behind. What could you possibly do with it? Unless you do build schools and hospitals and housing for ordinary people. But the kind of person who accumulates that much wealth is not temperamentally disposed to do that. This is why it has never worked to entrust our destiny to the very rich. There are many reasons why wealth distribution is desirable. Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, authors of the book, The Spirit Level, using data from 23 developed countries, found correlations between inequality and poor physical and mental health, drug abuse, imprisonment, obesity, and teenage pregnancies. But the case I want to make today is that a proactive reduction in inequality will do what even the hardliners say they want. It will give our economy the boost it needs. If I'm right, as demand for labour recedes, we must do so with forms of redistribution other than wages, as Michael Burney said. The method I'm proposing is the universal basic income. I'm proposing this not as an end state, but as a transition plan. The alternative models being discussed at this conference describe the ways the new economy might take shape. The universal basic income simply acknowledges that in order to transition from our existing mode to possibly diverse emerging and perhaps highly localised alternatives, we need to redistribute two important resources back to communities. One is economic power, the other is time. So what is the universal basic income? What if we provided every resident citizen, man, woman, and child, with enough to pay for basic needs? Let's start with food, shelter, clothing, power, communications, and public transport. 
There would still be plenty of room for innovation, entrepreneurship, and world creation, but no one would have to do without for purely economic reasons. Would you do that? It sounds like a lot of money, but while everyone would receive it, in practice, it would be those at the bottom that benefit. For those at the top, it would be offset by a greater contribution, but this would be small relative to their wealth. Think of it as assisted trickle-down. <laughs> to avoid a structural government deficit, there would need to be a corresponding amount of revenue from some form of taxation. Contrary to what you hear, in Australia we are not taxed highly in comparison with the rest of the OECD, but we are taxed badly. We could get serious about clamping down on multinational and other corporate wealthy, wealthy private tax avoiders. We could cut back on our unfunded subsidies in sectors like real estate and fossil fuels. We could implement some form of wealth tax, famously advocated by Warren Buffett. Many countries have one, Australia does not. We could tax financial transactions to limit the excesses of speculative investment, as Bernie Sanders proposed. We could tax destructive externalities, as we tried to do with the carbon tax. It's actually amazing how many ways there are we could do it. The American entrepreneur Peter Barnes suggests we cut to the chase and impose a tax on all forms of rent seeking. By this he means income, not deriving from anything a personal business produces, but simply from the rights or power that personal business lays claims to. In other words, extracting from the larger whole rather than adding to it. Our economy is riddled with it. Apart from the perks I already mentioned, there are all the rents associated with private monopolies and once public utilities and concentrations of market power in sectors such as energy, banking, retail, construction, communications, media, and increasingly agriculture. I'm going to cut to the chase. <clears throat> the two ways that have been proposed typically to get around this have been uh, to give businesses and wealthy people more tax breaks, where you can see how well uh, that works. The economist Stephen Kukulis recently made the point that if the government was serious about using tax cuts to stimulate the economy, it would be giving it to low income earners for the simple reason that they're the ones who are most likely to spend it. Government programs have also provided economic stimulus in the past, but these are increasingly revived. The universal basic income is an alternative to both of these mainstays. It puts economic power back into the hands of ordinary people and local communities, especially those that are currently starved of investment and economic, economic opportunity. This was the function performed by wages when labor was in high demand. In contrast to the top-down approaches of both big business and big government, it's a vote of confidence in people to take control of their own destinies and do something for themselves. It's not a handout, it's an investment. This is actually a libertarian idea, which is why it garnered some surprising supporters, no less a doyen of neoliberal principles than Milton Friedman, proposed it back in 1962. His justification, which is a good one, is that it would be so much more efficient than the present system of structured welfare entitlements that it would save the taxpayer money. <coughs> and the vast majority of ordinary Australians wouldn't even notice until they suffered extended illness or retired or lost their jobs to automation. I'm confident because I've seen it work. In 1980, I left my full-time job and became a working musician. 
It was, as it mostly always has been, but for everyone but a few, a precarious existence, except for one thing. In those days, if your income dried up, it was very easy to get the unemployment benefit. We used to refer to it as our arts grant. <laughs> our inner cities were full of painters, sculptors, musicians, actors, clowns and dancers. The arts weren't just in galleries and entertainment centres, they were on street corners, where people now feed money sombrifically into the dopamine dispensers of the gambling industry. They once let other human beings entertain them. It was possible for a large arts community to survive because you didn't need much money to do it. Even on the dole, you could simply live. You could live adequately in a share house, feed and clothe yourself, and still have some money left for transport and entertainment. There could be many other benefits, especially in poor and regional communities. It could be empowering for local communities, especially those that are disadvantaged, because it would place agency and responsibilities in their hands. This is in contrast to the welfare system, which tends to stigmatise and entrench disadvantage. We should see cost savings in public health, including mental health, security and policing. But it wouldn't work in isolation. Other policies would be needed to help us succeed, including affordable housing, universal health care, mental health, free education, access to low-cost internet legal aid, and finance for viable new ventures are all essential. A fairer tax system is also viable. And assistance to communities to make the transition. Instead of depending on the few who can now enrich themselves without benefit to the greater good, we should liberate the potential of the many.